0: Listening to www.infinitesmile.org, Enjoy the Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister.
1: The springtime has brought some uh, allergies to my face, so if uh, please forgive if i go into a sneezing attack don't don't uh, let it bother you too much i wanted to talk tonight about how in buddhism we we talk about the three marks of existence the three things that kind of identify our existence as human beings our existences as human beings They're fairly simple. The first one is that there is suffering. This is a fundamental reality of our world. There is suffering. That things are temporary or that there is impermanence. And then lastly, that there is no self. So I'll break these things down kind of uh, simply as best I can. They're very, very simple, especially if we look at the first two. If we look at our first mark of existence, that uh, life is suffering, it's very rare that you get someone on a spiritual path or they find themselves arising in the world as a spiritual seeker unless something's wrong, unless there's a little bit that's tweaked, that there's some degree of uh, uh, suffering in their lives. A degree of pain that isn't just superficial, but it's some deep longing that's pulling. And this deep longing we can oftentimes just look at as kind of uh, uh, being the universe reminding itself through us that there is work to do, that there is expansion to be met with. Similarly, we can look at the fact that suffering will always, always exist as long as we feel separate from everything as long as we feel separate from everything our existence is really about crashing into stuff and stuff crashing into us and us wanting to fend that stuff away or go after the stuff we think is going to help us that pretty much defines suffering we also call that in again in buddhism the wheel of samsara that in all cases. We are just perpetually on this cycle of birth and death. Stuff arises, and we go after it, or stuff arises, and we try to push it away. That said, we're very lucky when we recognize that in addition to the fact that there is suffering, everything, including the suffering, is temporary. temporary or the temporary nature of all things or impermanence we can also see is very simply we can we can relate just like we can with suffering it's like yeah okay I I, suffering and that's that's real even when I feel super happy even when I feel like my life is going just perfectly exactly the way I want it I'm almost complete if I could just get those curtains hung in that window just you know whatever it happens to be I'm almost complete, the universe has this great way of pulling the rug right out from under us, throwing us an illness, offering us the passing of someone or something. We take a financial hit. Whatever it happens to be, the universe will always show us where we need to uh, let go. And this is where we can begin to recognize impermanence showing up. As much as we would like to keep things in order and perfectly aligned and under control, that sense of control is temporary. Our bliss, just like any state, is temporary. Our relationships to whatever it might be, to a person, to a conviction, to uh, an idea, to a value structure, and I know these all sound very similar, but whatever it might happen to be, to a style, whatever it might happen to be, all of those relationships are temporary. Any state that we might, ha- that we might have in meditation that is brought up through a stillness practice, it arises. And then it fades away. And so often in spiritual work, we'll find that people will uh, you know, f- have this unquantifi- un- unquantifiably, that's a great word, unquantifiably rich, powerful experience. And it will last for days, weeks, months, and then boom, stop. And it's like, wh- I got to get that back. All states are temporary. Our bliss is temporary. But then once again, so too is our suffering. Anything that comes up is a temporary state. What goes up must come down. It's my favorite song, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, when I was a little kid. I absolutely loved it, and I loved how the Muppets would do it on Sesame Street. They'd sing it. I just thought that was the coolest thing. And I thought it was a very, very powerful idea, even as a five-year-old, no matter what I threw up in the air, it wasn't going to stay up there. It was going to come down. No matter how badly I skinned my knee, it wasn't going to be in pain forever. There would be a time when it would come back around, back to normalcy. And whatever normalcy was there, whatever, that, if that was up, it was going to come down. That there was this surfing in the world that needed to take place in order for any degree of sanity to be there. So these first two are pretty simple, that there's suffering and that there's impermanence. And then the kicker, the one that most of this work centers around is this idea of no self, especially as we get into the advanced stages of work, of practice. We carry around this sense of me-ness in the world, I am me. This is mine. So, how do we articulate this no self? Uh, I think it's not so simple. It's experiential. We begin to recognize, wait, wait a minute. What is this self? I hear you know, the teacher talking about it, or I hear, uh, you, know, the, you know, I read this in some, you know, Buddhist text. And if it's not Buddhist, it's any other wisdom tradition because they all take us right in the same direction. Um, I can point out very clearly what self is and maybe we can just by looking at self, we can deconstruct it and v- at least have some type of experiential relationship of what non-self might be. So one of the great Bodhisattvas in my life was my ninth-grade English teacher, Ms. Marie Olson, at uh, at Akalani's. She also I happened to get I was very I was blessed to have her also my junior year, and uh, I have so much gratitude to offer her, not just because she helped push my brain and my skills as a, as a writer, but because she got me to question. And if there's really one thing that, that spiritual practice is about, it's about questioning. So I had to read uh, a poem and um, I, was, I was, I had to read it in class to the, to the group and i was feeling relatively self-conscious at 14 uh especially since there was a girl in there that i thought was cute and i was re- you know really embarrassed i didn't want to get up there and make a total idiot of myself and she said well what's powerful to you and uh, and she started asking me all these questions about you know well, what do you like what do you you know and we got onto the subject of of what it means to be a man. I have no idea how we got here, but I just remember this part of the conversation. And she said, have you ever read the poem Invictus? I said, no. She goes over to her little book cabinet. She picks it out. She goes, maybe this would be a good poem for you to read. And I read it, and it stuck with me all the way through my the most intense aspect of my Buddhist practice, um, and I would say that it actually lit the fuse of the time bomb, lit just it just lit the fuse of whatever was going to go off in me and let go eventually. It happened there in the most strange way. so let, let me read you the poem. This defines selfhood. imagine if we can be in this space of deep selfhood, what the tender embrace of the all might offer to that contraction of selfhood. Out of the night that covers me, it begins. Out of the night that covers me, black is the pit from pole to pole. I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. By William Ernest Henley, who died in 1903. There's also a great sailboat named Invictus. Uh, (laughs) But... Can you see how intensely bound that idea of go ahead, bring it on. Mm-hmm. This this incredible sense of powerful me ness in that work. My head is bloody but unbowed. In the fell clutch of circumstance, you know, yada 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 yada. I'm going through hell and I'm going to keep going through hell, and you're not going to break me. Okay, that's one way of going about it. That's one way of going about living. But the third mark of existence suggests precisely the opposite of this. It says that there's more, and that as long as we cling to this sense of selfhood, and we can't actually look at what's beyond the contraction, we will forever live the life of Invictus. We will forever have our heads perhaps unbowed but bloodied. We will perpetually be locked in the first mark of existence, which is suffering. So the key to actually getting on the other side of our suffering And getting on the other side of impermanence to that which is never born and never dies, that which is eternal, is recognizing the third mark of existence, which is no self. Once we actually can start to realize that, then everything begins to fall into a whole other place, a placeless place. So at the risk of giving any of us here too much to grab onto, we remember Dogen's comment that we study this self. We study that in us, which is ready to just take on whatever punishment comes our way with an unbowed sense of pride sense of my soul my experience me mine i all of that stuff instead of just the i am me instead of just am we hang on to the me and the i we hang on to the me and the mine. instead of just the verb to be instead of just being And that happens the minute we start to study the self. When we study the self, we forget the self. And when we forget the self, we are enlightened by all things, says Dogen. This is because we start to recognize that this self is a concept that we have built over years and years and years and years of time. What is the self? It's nothing other than a series of relationships it's a relationship that the mind has with its self it's a relationship that the body has with its with its self it's a relationship that the body has with mind and heart and i mean it's just this contained series of relationships that are totally in flux just like if we were to ask what is the ocean is it waves? Well, yeah. is it all the stuff that's in the ocean? yeah. is it the foam that arises out of the crashing of a wave that's no longer part of the well, yeah. Is it currents? Yeah. Is it recognize this? It's it's not just one thing. It's a series of stuff that's constantly in flow just like we are. We are temporary. And in the recognition of that temporariness, And in the meeting of that temporariness, that impermanence, in the meeting of our suffering, fully, with our full mind and our full heart, we start seeing that this concept we have of self begins to take on a whole new form, and that new form is totally liberating. It helps us see, actually, what's beyond the contraction It helps us see that we are no longer the master of our fates, nor are we the captains of our souls. We are merely and miraculously wildly vast expressions of the infinite at every single moment. And the minute we can meet that consciously, the minute we can meet that consciously, we are enlightened by all things. And, all things are enlightened by us.
0: <laughs> okay, so, how do you talk about... If I notice sometimes when people are talking to you about something, and they'll say, well, I, and you go, who's talking? And I feel like, okay, yeah, right. But how do you t- talk about, what how do you, what's the vocabulary?
1: Yeah. When I push someone that way, mm-hmm. it's usually because just in, in the teaching role, I'm watching them make a habitual move that I want to try to break them from. So that's just pedagogy. I wouldn't say that to everybody. But there are some people who, as students or whatever you want to, you know, as students, they keep coming at me with the same, the same vibe coming from the same space and what i really want to try to do is relentlessly chip away at that very uh, habitual inertia i want i want to knock that i want to knock that stone off its track as best i can so when the mind gets stopped there's a brief moment a brief opportunity a brief potential glimpse of <gasps> rarely works (laughs) you know but (laughs) right right but that deer in the headlights that that literally it's such a great expression the deer in the headlights of oh crap (laughs) you know but it's prior to the even crap part of that phrase it's just oh that right there is no self mind is not related in that experience not, there's not a calculation or an evaluation or a judgment that's going on. It's just <gasps> right? Mm-hmm. And so when I extend that to someone, it's usually to try to put the light right, just right on them. Say, excuse me? Now, to be fair, the language that we use in here, especially at this level, is going to be totally infused with contraction. Right? It's totally infused with the me, uh, with the I, because that's how we converse. But as we literally advance, if you will, on this path, it can become much more quiet, and you yourself have tasted that on retreat. We didn't need to say anything. In fact, I was amazed at how many conversations I had just in, in practice discussion with people where there were maybe 10 words exchanged, but we sat with each other for minutes and minutes and minutes and minutes, right? So that we begin to communicate from a very selfless place. We communicate from, consciously, from the depth of the infinite. And that can be said with our eyes as well as our bodies and our mouths, right? It just shifts gears a little bit. Uh, that said, I welcome, and I it's it's humbling to me to even be sitting on this cushion and to have this conversation with you or anybody else. So who was it that I was asking me this question? <laughs> <laughs>
0: In listening to the poem um, and this is the very constricted self I mean this this sounds like suffering to me yeah the poem does doesn't it yeah and uh, so if as you move not wanting to be the master I mean if you let go not have to be the master of your soul and your being you're releasing into a greater being, power, whatever. Um, and the constriction falls away or I don't know if it falls away is the
1: it becomes informed with something greater, perhaps informed. is the way to say it. I, I
0: it's I a lot it is about vocabulary for yes. me often. I find myself trying to explore something and I don't know where the
1: vocabulary is you know it's but that's a that's a really beautiful step the language gets in the way y- y- right
0: yes it's almost like i understand it better without any words right i we mean that was so clear yeah the poem about how miserable that state is <laughs> <Yeah>. right <laughs> no. Why would
1: anybody want to be there? (laughs) Right. Yet, how do we live? I mean, this was very real. This is the way I lived. I don't know. I can't speak for anyone else in this room, but this was the way I lived up until, you know, my teacher gave me a few whacks with the, uh, proverbially, with the, with the, uh, the Kiyosaki, the stick. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not the captain of your fate. You're not, you know, the master of your soul. Whack. Oh, I'm not? Mm-hmm. Who's asking? <laughs> uh, Right?
0: But the whole teaching of society here in our nation huh? is for the individual and to be right. in control.
1: We are like salmon.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Having a little trouble on it. These days. Yeah, <laughs>
1: but you, you, right? It's swimming upstream. Right? Mm-hmm. That's okay. Slavery was never going to end, right? We were never going to get anti lynching laws. Mm-hmm. We were never, ever going to see uh, a hybrid automobile as long as Detroit, you know, had its lobbying power, you know, so ensconced in Washington. We were never gonna, so I mean, history is littered with these, we, we will never see. And perhaps that will not happen within uh, uh, our finite self-oriented sense of a lifetime. But that's not important. The important thing for us to do is to engage, especially when we can engage from beyond the words, Carla, we can engage from beyond the words when these words either that you're reading from some you know uh, a person's work or that we are exchanging here in dialogue at sangha when you can hear them with your whole body as opposed to your mind there's a different sense of knowing truth isn't there Mm -hmm. it's it's like it enters it's it's a and that actually is what helps generate the earthquake within that then cracks the suffering it breaks the barriers that this poor guy <laughs> you know had built uh-huh. uh my head is bloody but unbowed oh poor guy Exactly. yeah poor guy and i say oh, poor guy really not, that, not that it's not that and in the yeah. shade. Yeah, and guess what? Never, f- Never in the light. And he is not separate from us. Invictus is an aspect of us. Each of us has I mean, this quality. Oh, yeah. So it's not outside. It's not outside. It's within. And so our work ultimately then is to change the relationship we then have with that, if we can hold it tenderly, kiss it, make friends with it, and let it know that as much as it would like to feel that it is in charge, it isn't, so it can go ahead and act out the drama. It can go ahead and play it out on the stage of mind, and we will sit in the audience and watch. And That's feel. Miserable yeah, yeah, and we'll feel we'll feel compassion. But just as an audience member might be moved by what's going on on stage, there's a recognition either during intermission or after the play is over. It's like, oh, yeah, now i got to go home. That was a play. Invictus is just a script that ego loves to read. So we get beyond by watching, by witnessing what's going on with radical... Honesty, deep concentration, and that's the process. We sometimes refer to it as purification. I don't like using that word, but it's like we we literally start becoming clearer and clearer and clearer as to what's real and what's not. And the self that you know is ready to fight, ready to kill, it ain't real. It's not. Or rather, let I me. Mean, Let me backtrack a little bit. It's not the only reality. It's a contracted reality. The expansive reality where we can get infinite potentiality is so far beyond this speck of dust, yet we tend to give a certain totality to this speck of dust. And we think that's our whole existence. It's tiny.
0: actually recognize that this is a really constricted, restricted moment. Yeah. You know, a- activity, action, what interaction, whatever. Do you have any little technique that you say, I mean, like a yoga breath or whatever, just to sort of... Y- yeah. A- and the thing is, you feel it. You know right. it.
1: Right, right. Yeah. But caught. Uh-huh. Uh, I always... This, I don't know if this would work for you, but this was taught to me by a gardener. Uh, actually, I used to work in the garden at Green Gulch, and mm-hmm. and she would say, I think I've told you this before, actually. Uh, you know, whenever something begins to generate resistance or you feel that contraction, you, you literally can feel the weight of it, uh, she would say, oh, it's just mind. That's very helpful to me. It has been for years. (laughs) It's just mind. And it can be really hot in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. And I can pull that one out. Uh, Another one is just a breath. A breath. A breath reminds you of what's really present. A breath is always there. right? It's always in flux. It's always in flow but it's always there, it's contained within, right? But it's also miraculously mm-hmm. totally connected to what's without. And so that breath kind of reminds us of the exhale into the infinite and the inhale within. So we recognize just kind of the, the ebb and flow of life in that moment, uh, witnessing the experience, witnessing the experience before you react the breath can help give you that chance to witness. Okay. Feel it first, then engage.
0: What if you're already engaged and you suddenly realize?
1: Yeah, that defines unconsciousness. And so what we do is we get right back on the wagon. Whenever we fall off like that, we just get right back on. It's okay, that's gonna happen. But um, that's huge. That's huge practice right there. The minute you fall off and you recognize, oh my gosh, I fell off. i got to get back on. That's the work. That's the heavy lifting we've talked about. That's where we actually get back. Oh yeah. We get back on our cushion in that moment, even though we're not anywhere near our cushion, perhaps. And you don't get the chastised mind. <laughs> yeah, you don't. You don't, because mind itself, ego itself is still, just like everything else, a beautiful expression of infinity.
2: From time to time you uh, talk about, ask yourself, what do I really want? So who's asking?
1: Exactly. That's it. Who's asking? I'm not trying to be flip here. Who's asking? As you start to uncover that, the depths of that question, what do you really, 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 really want? What happens is usually you arrive, may take a while, but usually you arrive at nothing. I don't need anything. I don't need anything. I isn't even there, right? And so when I ask, the, I hate to let the cat out of the bag, this may have screwed up the whole teaching here, but uh, <laughs> but as we keep plumbing that question, what do I really, really, really want? As you keep plumbing that, you'll keep hitting a brick wall, okay? To the point where that brick wall begins to break down and merge with whatever is on the other side of it so that it becomes the all the big circle uh it's almost like a form of homeopathy spiritual homeopathy you just keep you go right for the poison what do i want right and so the greed then begins to or the desire then begins to inform and get you really clear about what in you is totally contracted, what in you uh, finds and shall find itself unafraid, whose head is bloody but unbowed. I mean, we start digging into the self so much that the third mark of existence, the self, begins to show up as nothing other than a figment of our imagination. And that imagination, we can see, play itself out on the stage of mind. And we're the witness. And that witness is universal. All beings, all sentient beings, have the capacity to be aware. We just begin to let that awareness inform, that huge expanse of awareness, inform the tiny, contracted, everything else, and it busts apart. What do you really, really, really want? There's nothing to want. It just takes a while to get there.
2: That's just thinking of maybe of yourself but then there's other people you have to think of and there may be things that you're ready to totally let go of, but you can't because there's other people that are depending on you.
1: Help clarify that for me.
2: Oh, I don't know. I think maybe just what you want to do with more of your time or how you want to have more of how you want to occupy your time or, um, maybe what sort of material things you're particularly interested in anymore and those that you're not, and just all of the trappings of life that you maybe don't care as much about, but there's other people that aren't in the same place.
1: Right, right. Now, so then, then we get into, yeah, when a family depends on your ability to really care with the degree of fire about things that they care about but aren't as important to you anymore, that presents a really, really unique opportunity for practice because what it does is it turns the heat up on theirs. Right? You do the compassionate thing, whatever that might be, but if it takes you away from the truth that is beginning to bubble up in you, it then begins to diminish all that is holy within you. And then you can't serve anybody with any degree of integrity. You have to stay near that truth. You have to, because that truth is you. <laughs> and the closer you can get to that, the more of a radical effect it can have on everybody else that's around you. And it allows you to not only let go of your own personal wishes and desires and of things that are material and maybe things that are not material, as you begin to let go of that stuff but not push it away, suddenly what that does is it offers up something for everybody else to practice with themselves. You then begin living close to your truth, and everybody else then has a choice. They can live close to their own or... They can move on and do something else. In either either way, it's freeing. Not only for you, but for everybody else. I don't know if this felt like I'm giving you a very skillful answer, but I think that it's 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 so critical on this path to be very, very close to your sense of truth. Okay? Because the closer you are to your sense of truth, the closer the impersonal truth begins to radiate and shine on you. Or the more intensely, I should say, begins to shine on you. It's no longer your truth or your sense of truth. It becomes truth beyond name and form. And when you start working with that as your fuel, you then become a divinely inspired bulldozer, you can move mountains. The action from that place changes lives, especially those that are close to you. It might not be what you imagine it to look like, but it will change lives. I'm a little late. Otherwise, I'd say go for it, but uh, i got to get home to my... <laughs> My wife and dog, thank you guys so much for coming.